Walleye World podcast. It's Rob, and this is the June episode. We've got a great guest. It's Mark Romanak of Fishing 411. I've learned a ton from him watching his TV show, and I had the opportunity to work for him for some of the sport fishing shows earlier in the spring representing offshore tackle. So it's been great. He's a great guy and has a ton of knowledge to help you, whether you're beginning in fishing or you know more established in something. So we learn a lot from him in this upcoming interview, and I think you'll really enjoy it. So while you guys are getting ready to enjoy the show, I'm here at home editing this episode, and I'm enjoying my cherry maple smoked beef jerky outlet jerky. Can't beat that, and I've got something good for you coming. Stay tuned. So for the June edition of the Wally World podcast, I have Fishing 411's creator, Mark Romanek. And if you're anywhere somewhat familiar of fishing and the Great Lakes region, you've definitely heard of that name before and you've definitely heard of Fishing 411. So Mark, welcome on the podcast. Well, thank you, Rob. I appreciate the invite. Yeah. So for those listeners who aren't familiar with Fishing 411, go ahead and tell us a little bit about it. Well, um, we've been in television production for about 14 years now, so we're we're filming season 14 currently. Uh, we're a national broadcast television firm. We uh, produce 13 episodes a year, and those original episodes broadcast on two primary networks, the Sportsman's Channel, uh, which is one of the big networks out there, outdoor networks, and also World Fishing Network. And that's during the first and the second quarters of the year. So for about half of the year, we're on national broadcast television. The rest of the year, um, our production stuff gets viewed um, on demand in a variety of different places, like, for example, uh, a Carbon TV or a MyOutdoorTV.com. And if all else fails, you can always find our stuff um, on YouTube, which, of course, everybody these days seems to have a YouTube channel, and so does Fishing 411. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, so if you guys haven't checked that out, um, either on TV or on social media, you can get it. And it's really cool because it's easily digestible. Um, any technique, any body of water, Mark and Jake really break it down. And, you know, this is a walleye show, and, and Mark has strong roots in walleye fishing to begin with. So my next question for you, Mark, is looking back on your angling journey, was there a key event or experience which solidified your passion for fishing for walleyes? <laughs> uh, probably my first adventure in walleyes was the very first Masters Walleye Council tournament that came to Michigan, and that was held on the Tippecanoe and Saginaw rivers. And um, at the time, I wasn't fishing the tournaments yet. I was an observer at that event, um, working for the city of Saginaw. I had not started writing full time at that point in my career. And ironically, the folks that won that, Gary Parsons and Keith Cavias, uh, are actually my brother-in-laws now. Um, and that's when I first met those guys and first got kind of the, the bug, so to speak, and because I was doing a little bit of media work on the side, uh, I was introduced to those guys and did some articles for, at the time, the Saginaw News, which I was writing for. So uh, that was my first experience in you know, competitive walleye fishing, and I got hooked big time quickly. And very nearly after that, I decided that I wanted to do it myself and got a boat, got some sponsors, and, <laughs> and away I went. There you go. That's cool. I mean, I don't know if a lot of people have heard that part of your story, but I think it's pretty cool for our audience to learn about how you really got the bug there. So you have a very diverse background. You'd mentioned outdoor writing and, and also the TV show there. As you kind of progress through your career, what are some of the things that you did earlier in your career to position yourself to become a more well-rounded communicator and also leveraging media? Well, nobody gets anywhere in life without help, and, and I'm a classic example of that. I had lots of people that, uh, that gave me uh, good help, and probably the most important person in my life, uh, he's passed on now, but Dave Ritchie, who was the outdoor writer for the Detroit News for many, many years, um, took a shine to me. And uh, early in my career, 
Um, he actually hired me to work for one of his companies that he owned. Uh, essentially, what he had me doing was writing press releases. Um, and mm. uh, it's the most mundane kind of writing that you can possibly do. But the way to get good at anything is to do a lot of it. And that's what I was doing. Every single day, I was cranking out press release after press release after press release. And I learned how to write doing that. I also learned a work ethic uh, that's important. I learned about deadlines and how important they are. You cannot miss a deadline in this business. In the writing industry, if you miss a deadline, <laughs> your editor is never going to call you back. Again. You're, <laughs> you're just out of luck at that point. And, and so... Watching Dave work and looking at how he did it, um, and giving me somebody to, uh, you know, to kind of pattern myself after was a huge advantage for me. And uh, it wasn't long after that I got enough courage to go out and start doing some freelancing on my own, and eventually became a full-time freelancer. Um, but I would have never gotten there uh, without the help of Dave and Kay Ritchie. They were wonderful people in uh, in my life early in my career. Very nice. Yeah. So when did you begin to kind of transition to doing stuff with media? Well, it didn't happen initially. You know, most of my career has been writing. And in fact, at one point in time, uh, I was writing for 30 different publications, uh, national publications, some regional, some local. Um, but the problem is of that list of those publications, there's only about six of them still in business now. Oh. And so unfortunately, the outdoor magazine industry has shrunk tremendously and that's just the nature of the way the world has changed people get their information differently now than what they did in my generation people sat down with a cup of coffee and a magazine and that's how they learned about walleye fishing mm -hmm. uh, that's not the case anymore most young guys that are getting into walleye fishing are probably getting their information through the internet um, and through digital media and so it became apparent that i was gonna have to make some kind of changes and i wasn't willing to get out of the outdoor industry uh, unfortunately for me i had another friend that i'd been close with for many years, Mike Avery, who produces a radio program in Michigan now. Uh, he had an outdoor program at the time, television outdoor program, and he came to me and asked if you know, I would be willing to host a second program that he was interested in producing. So uh, that's where Fishing 401 really got its first start. So for the first two years, I was hosting that show. Mike was producing it. Mike was doing the videography work and the editing work. Mm. Um, and then eventually Mike decided that he really didn't want to be in the in the television end of it. He wanted to be in the radio end of it. And so, um, you know, he gave me the opportunity to take Fishing 401 on myself. And that's exactly what we did. And, uh, and so, again, I got help from someone else. If I hadn't had that kind of guidance, I didn't know anything about television production at that time. Yeah. Uh, but wouldn't have been for Mike Avery. I would have never been able to make that transition. Got you. Yeah. So an overarching theme and underpinning in, in your story that I'm seeing so far with the media promotion stuff and educating people with walleye fishing is uh, networking and not being afraid to step out and do something different or risky. And uh, that's been successful for you. Well, and I would agree. I mean, you, you know, nothing worth, you know, you know, accomplishing is going to come without some effort. Um, and um, most of us don't have the skill sets to be able to do all these things. But if you search around and find people who do, I think you'll be surprised. Most people are willing to help other people. And that's been my observation in this business is that people that hunt and fish and enjoy that um, are more than willing to share what they know. Um, about hunting and fishing in the industries that we work in. Yeah, I would agree with that. So you answered one of my questions I was going to ask already. You talked about how you got started with outdoor writing. I'm kind of curious about uh, college age, Mark. Did you learn some of those skills for writing and, and understanding how to reach people <laughs> in your college years? No. <laughs> no, in fact, 
this is kind of ironic that um, in college, uh, of course, I had I had to take like everybody who goes to college. I had to take writing classes and, and English classes and stuff. And, uh, and one of my assignments, one of my professors was to do uh, just to um, write about anything you want to write about. And so I wrote an outdoor story about fishing. And uh, and the professor was a lady, and uh, and when she read it and, and graded it, she kind of you know put a big question mark on it and said, "What's this?" In other words, she didn't get it. Mm-hmm. Um, she had no clue what outdoor magazines were all about or why you know guys would read about you know how to catch fish kind of thing. She was completely in the dark about that. So um, kind of ironic that some years down the road that uh, um, <laughs> I turned it into a six-figure career. Uh, but uh, um, yeah, my early start in writing was uh, was pretty rocky. I mean, it's like everything else. You don't start out being good at something. You get good at something by working at it diligently day in and day out and and we're honing that craft to the point where it's something you can be proud of uh, trust me my early days of writing were uh, we're not pulitzer material <laughs> not, not even close yeah so one thing you kind of tipped your hand to earlier you, you'd mentioned something along the lines that informational articles may not have the same power they did you know maybe 15 years ago but um do you still see value and in, in power and in, in writing outdoor related articles well, there's no doubt about it. The printed word is still very powerful, and unfortunately, it's just not you know is available in as many venues. You know, in my era growing up, it really was the only way people got information is through the printed word. So it was much more powerful in that days, mm-hmm. you know, in, the, in that age. Um, but keep in mind that communication skills you have to be able to write to communicate at any level, even at the television level, you know, or radio, whatever it might be that a person's doing. A lot of that's transcripts. A lot of that's writing. So a person mm-hmm. who's got good, solid writing skills who can communicate writing, there's always be a demand for those people, uh, regardless of what you know occupation you decide to apply it to, whether it's the outdoors or I don't know whether you want to be a doctor, a lawyer, whatever a person wants to be in life. Writing skills are important, and um, and in the outdoor world, it's surprising how few really good communicators there are. And if you look around, you'll start to notice that the people who can really communicate are the ones that very fast rise to the top. Yeah. They become the cream. Um, and it really boils down to their ability to communicate and also their willingness to share that communication. Because uh, a lot of fishermen don't want to give up their secrets, you know, their <laughs> trade secrets. That's true. Um, and I get that. But uh, I've made a living out of giving up trade secrets um, because there's other people out there who are hungry you know, to do the same thing that we're doing. Absolutely. So, Mark, what are some practical steps for those that enjoy writing or maybe want to grow in writing to become more effective writers on outdoor topics? Well, you got to start someplace and you got to start, you know, small. So typically, if you if you want to write and get paid for it, you're going to have to pick some of the smaller um, what I call tabloids, smaller magazines Mm -hmm. um, that don't get a lot of the top level writers working for them. They don't pay very much. And as a result, some of the top writers just ignore them. So those are avenues where a guy can get his foot in the door, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And the analogy I always use, I'm a baseball fan, so I always call those those magazines, those are the minor leagues of writing. <laughs> you got to start there before you can work your way up to the majors. You know, and then writing, the majors are glossy magazines, you know, the, the monthly publications, things like In Fisherman, Bassmasters. Um, you know, those are the magazines that pay good, solid amount of money. But yeah. you're as an untested writer, you're not going to crack that market on your first article. Mm-hmm. So you got to start someplace. And so you start at the smaller pubs, you build a name for yourself, um, build a reputation that you're dependable. Um, and most importantly, that you're credible. The stuff you write about is truthful. It's honest. It's real. And, uh, and that's really what it boils down to. If you're a BSer, find yourself another line of work because it yeah. isn't going to fly in, in the hunting and fishing industry. 
Yeah, I think uh, building a, a brand, if you will, for Fishing 401 on, on truthfulness and, and sharing what really works out there in various places is what made your avenue there just be an enduring brand, not only just in Michigan, but throughout the Great Lakes region, and I would say North America too. If you would, walk us through what goes into planning the shows prior to being ready to film one of them. Well, it's it's actually not that complicated. Um, but early on, we made lots of mistakes. We would go to places we thought were going to be good fishing. Uh, we'd go out and we'd try it, and uh, we'd be unsuccessful. Um, meanwhile, we've wasted a lot of resources, a lot of money, and a lot of time, and not accomplished much. So what we do these days is we have a network. We have a group of people out there that I trust, guys that I know are great fishermen mm-hmm. who are also willing to share their information. that they have. And so once we hear that there's a bite going on, and it could be locally, it could be close to my home, heck, it could be on the Columbia River on the West Coast, when we hear that there's a good bite going on, then the next thing we do is we get online and we start checking the weather. And as you know, you're a fisherman. Every good yeah. fisherman lives and dies by the weather. So it doesn't matter how good the fishing is, is going to be. If the weather sucks, <laughs> we're not going yeah. um, because it's not going to be productive. So we find a good bite through our network. Then we find a window uh, of opportunity. Is the weather going to be good enough? And we're looking for a two to three day window because that's about how long it takes to shoot a television show. Mm-hmm. And when those two windows align, then we jump on it. If those windows do not align, we pass on that opportunity and we wait for the next one because otherwise we'll go there you know, and we'll find ourselves, you know, drinking coffee in the local cafe or sitting in the motel <laughs> room looking out, you know, at a, you know, a body of water that's too rough to fish. Yeah. And, um, and so that's worked out pretty good for us. Now, not always do we hit a home run. Um, in fact, we've, you know, we still have failures, but our, our failure list is much lower now than it was early on. These days, when we show up in town to shoot, most of the time we're successful. Perfect. So one of my favorite things is how you and Jake break down bodies of water, educate people, and you know your audience and how to best communicate to them. And that's just for all bodies of water you guys go to in North America. So before the show, I asked you to take a look at some charts of Lake St. Clair. Can you give me some ideas of how you would break down that piece of water if you were to go there right today? You know, I guess one of the most important things you got to look at is the time of year. I mean, you're, we're in the middle of June, towards the end of June. What's happening right now that's a dynamic event in the Great Lakes, and uh, um, I'm kind of alluding to the Mayfly Hatch. Yeah. Um, it's under, you know, in some areas it's, you know, it's almost done. In other areas it's just getting started. It depends on the latitude of where you happen to be in the Great Lakes. Um, but the Mayfly Hatch is kind of the kiss of death for us because it puts a lot of food in the environment and um, and makes fishing much, much tougher. So it has another huge disadvantage uh, for most fishermen, and that's what I would just sum up as aquatic weeds. Um, you have to embrace them in Lake St. Clair. There's no way to avoid them, um, you know, because – they're virtually everywhere. Not only are they, you know, the weeds that you'd have to necessarily drift or troll through that are anchored to the bottom, the ones that become the problem are the ones that are chopped up and floating on the surface. Yeah. And they're drifting around and they're catching on all your lines. So if you're a lazy fisherman, um, Lake St. Clair probably is the place you want to go because you have to work twice as hard to be half as successful at Lake St. Clair because you're battling the weeds constantly. And uh, if I could list a, you know, a go-to rig that I would use for there this time of year, it would be spinners. Um, spinners typically work better during the fly hatches. Um, I would go with bullet-type sinkers um, in order to so that when I drift or troll, I can bump the tops of the weeds but not necessarily snagging the weeds. So I would avoid traditional things like bottom bouncers and spinners I would stay away from. Crankbaits I would stay away from. Spoons I would stay away from um, until... Um, you know, these floating weeds on the surface become less of a problem and until the, the mayfly hatch decides to uh, to run its course. So right now, 
crawler harnesses uh, on the tops of the weeds, either drifting or trolling. Uh, pretty hard to beat that in Sinclair. Yeah, that's a proven pattern. And uh, one thing I've kind of observed with, it could be a number of different factors. Obviously, the lake level's very high there, but it seems like everything's a little bit behind. Unless you're up pretty shallow, you're not going to see a whole lot of weed beds. But if you are fishing those weed beds, oh my gosh, they're there. I mean, just grind through them with spinners. So yeah, Definitely things are behind this year, but I've never seen a spring quite like the spring of 2019. Sure. So you're seeing that pattern across other bodies of water where you're fishing. It's impacted on us negatively um, in most of our shoots up until just recently. And just recently, we started wearing shorts. That's that's the milestone for me. When I can fish in a t-shirt and shorts, yeah. <laughs> it's happy days, man. Um, but it's only been just recent that, uh, that we could do that. I mean, we were fishing literally in our ice fishing gear all the way up into May. Mm-hmm. And that's just unheard of here. Gotcha. So if you were to take a look at a chart of Lake St. Clair right now, is there a particular area of the lake that you would target? I'm not sure. You know, what I'd recommend there, you know, probably um, you know, up in Anchor Bay, um, up in those areas, because, you know, you've got all that nutrient-rich water coming down out of the St. Clair River that just pours in there. Um, pretty hard to beat that. You've got transient fish that are coming and going from spawning, um, so they have to come through there. So that's kind of a pinch point, if mm-hmm. you will. I, know, I realize that's a big area, um, but it is a pinch point of sorts. Yeah, I would agree. And I think that uh, based on what I see being on that body of water and, and some of the guys I talk to, um, underutilized, at least for walleye guys. Uh, it gets often looked over, but definitely something to check out for guys. Cool. And um, one thing you talked about was trolling. You know, I'm a big offshore tackle guy. I know you're heavily involved with offshore. And one thing I've been doing is running those offshore OR38 mini planter boards on Lake St. Mm-hmm. Clair and in other places. And I'm kind of interested on your perspective on how you can push the limits of those things. So I was running them during practice for Michigan Walleye Tour and um, running uh, size one tadpoles, which aren't super heavy, but they got a diving action, right? And yeah. um, it, I mean, I was surprised I could push it up to 1.5, which is normally kind of the upper threshold of spinner fishing in my experience, and uh, big number eight Colorado blades, and it seemed to do just fine. I was catching fish. Is there a certain threshold where you find out performance-wise where you might want to go to the OR12 original size planer board? You, you might be surprised. Um you know, what you're calling the, you know, the OR38 is, you know, it's now called the Awesome Crappie Board. And uh, and ultimately, for those who are not familiar with it, it's a much smaller planer board, but it's a blade-style board. Um, the body of the board is a solid piece of plastic, and it has a float chamber on the top. So it's thinner on the bottom than a traditional planer board that has a foam liner in it. There's no foam liner in these boards. As a result, they pull out to the side better than you would imagine for a small board. Put it in perspective of a threshold, um, we actually fished three-ounce bottom bouncers on those little boards oh, successfully. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and that is definitely pushing the threshold. Um, the awesome copy board will, will fish any of the crankbaits that we routinely fish here in the Great Lakes all the way up to and including things like the 700 Series Reefrunner, which is a, a big and fairly deep-diving crankbait. Yeah, they dig um, hard. Yeah, and they might not pull out to the side quite as much as what a traditional board like the OR12 would do, but they're very, very adequate in that in that situation. And the nice thing about them is that when you hook a fish you know, on one of these mini boards, um, if you're rigging the board to release off the front like most guys would, what's going to happen as soon as you come tight on that fish and that board releases, that board is going to pop right up out of the water because it's so small and so light that just the weight of the fish struggling and fighting and the bow on your line, you know, and of course your rod pulling tight on the fish, pops that planer board right out of the water. And as a result, now all of a sudden what you're dealing with is a situation where you don't have to worry about lines tangling because the board is passing over top of the other boards in the air. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the coolest thing. 
And uh, we first started playing with it with steelhead um, and catching steelhead in rivers. Um, and we've had all kinds of fun catching, you know, things like walleyes with them. Uh, and we don't even hardly use them very often at all for what they were intended for, which is crappie trolling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of opportunity there, and they're affordable. You know, you're talking about a board that's less than $20, uh, and just about anybody can afford to go out and buy four of them. They're portable. They'll fit in anybody's tackle box. And I can't say enough about them. There really isn't uh, a, you know, a limitation there. You can fish them on light line. You can fish them on heavy line. You can fish them pretty much any way you want. So it's a great product to get people to try inline planer boards. Yeah, I'd agree with you, Mark. And one thing I did to just play around. So if you don't know, listeners, uh, that board, you can actually, it's one board, but you can fish both sides of the boat. I've made a little video on the podcast page. I love running that thing, and I'm just beginning to tap the potential of it for walleye fishing. And uh, it, it's great stuff. So another thing about offshore, I wanted to talk about the easy crankbait tuner. Um, I want to ask you about some of the benefits of that tool and also wanted to chat about the proper way to use it. Okay. Well, first of all, when it comes to crankbaits, if people struggle at them, nine times out of ten it's because they're fishing with a lure that's not tuned. And what I mean by tuned, a crankbait should dive straight into the water. And the easy way to test this, a litmus test, is to sit in your boat without the boat moving, without trolling or anything. Just cast a lure out, point your rod tip at the lure, uh, lower your rod tip towards the water, and reel for all you're worth. The faster you reel, what happens is that personifies any kind of imperfection in the tune of that lure. So if that lure is slightly out of tune, it's going to run either left of center or right of center as it comes towards you. And you can see that very, very quickly. So if that bait is running to the left, it's out of tune. If it's running to the right, it's out of tune. If it's running straight down, now that's a lure that will catch fish. And so it's really important that you adjust these crankbaits so they're all diving straight down. And most people simply don't know how to, you know, to do this, but it's a simple process. Historically, people have used, you know, a needle nose pliers, and they take the eye tie. You know, that's the part where you tie your line onto the crankbait, mm-hmm. and they'll bend it. If the bait's running left, they bend it a little bit right. The bait's running right, they bend it a little bit left. And that all sounds simple, but it's not quite that simple because a little goes a long ways. It's really easy to bend the you know the eye tie too much and take a bait that's running poorly and make it run even worse. And so it's a trial and error process. And that's what the you know the easy crankbait tuner is all about, is it's adjustable. It's got a slip jaw that has a spring tension on it. So you can tighten it and loosen it so that you can have just the right amount of tension on the pull point. So you can bend that eye tire, that pull point, ever so slightly. And then once you figure out you know, what the right amount of bend on that is or what the right amount of pressure is, you can duplicate that with lure after lure after lure. So it really streamlines the process. And the only thing that people have to remember uh, about the Easy Crankbait tool is it's got a slip jaw. So every time you make an adjustment, you're going to hear a little click. Well, then that jaw has popped the cam. So what you have to do is physically close it back again with your fingers, and then you can make another adjustment. If you don't do that and you try to make an adjustment, you can easily put too much pressure on the lure and just you know ruin the pull point or break your players. And it's a pretty powerful tool for the arsenal of a fisherman. And uh, ultimately, you're going to save more baits and be more efficient, in my opinion. There's no doubt about it, but there's a learning curve to it. And once a person plays with the Easy Crankbait Tuner long enough to get comfortable with it, um, they won't pick up those players anymore to do lure tuning. Um, it's definitely an advantage. Um, and the thing that excites me about this is not just walleye fishermen that we're reaching out. We're reaching out to all kinds of fishermen, crappie fishermen, bass fishermen. Just about everybody that's a serious fisherman is using crankbaits of one nature or another. Even muskie and pike fishermen are using a lot of crankbaits. So... Uh, it's an important tool to understand and it's an important tool to put to use. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So those that that haven't checked out that tool, you might want to. It's been helpful for me and numerous other anglers across the Great Lakes in North America. So, Mark, uh, we talked about how you're super involved with uh, the industry and the sport of fishing and some of your walleye fishing uh, foundation. So how have you seen the sport of walleye fishing evolve over your career in terms of technology and technique? <laughs> well, you know, techniques have refined a little, but basically the ways that we've caught walleyes 30 years ago, we're still catching them with those same techniques today, but technology, that's a different story, Rob. Mm -hmm. um, I could have never predicted the way technology would go and what would happen. And there are two primary technologies that have changed the way I fish forever. And one is wireless electric motors, um, autopilot style electric motors, GPS guided electric motors. And there's a variety of good brands on the market. I'm using a motor guide XI-5. A lot of people like the Minn Kota. Um, and here within the next few weeks, um, there's going to be three or four more brands jumping into the market. So no moving forward, there's going to be lots of wireless electric motors to pick from. And so you're, you know, the next question you're going to ask is, well, why are you so excited about them? Who would have ever thought that you would be able to take an electric motor, put it on a course, follow a course, and as you're catching fish, save waypoints, and then program the electric motor to take you back, not in the neighborhood of those fish, but exactly to where you just caught those fish and duplicate a pass perfectly a second time, just like you did it the first time. That kind of accuracy and ability and trolling to get back on spots very, very precisely, and I mean when I'm talking within 10 feet, uh, I mean, that's an amazing uh, bit of technology, in my opinion. And you can do it, you know, with these wireless electric motors, you can do it a number of ways. You can use the key fob, you can use a foot control, and many of them even actually interface through your sonar unit. You can actually even direct them through your sonar. I use Lowrance sonar units, which interface with motor guide electric motors, so I can actually run my electric motor through my Lowrance unit. It's so darn cool. Yeah. I can't even believe it. Yeah, so one of the coolest things about that, and, and I'd agree with you, Mark, that's a game changer and even something I've seen. That keeps you on spots where fish live and die by the spot. And also, as you mentioned, precision trolling. You're, you're staying right on the exact path that's been successful, and you can duplicate that. So if you're a tournament fisherman, that means getting the wave fish that you may need to be successful. And if you're just doing it for fun, uh, that means more fish in the live well. So super No question cool about it. It's uh the first thing I put in the water at the beginning of the day is an electric motor. The last thing I take out of the water at the end of the day is an electric motor. Um, in fact, I share ever even think about it. If the electric motor fails, you're done. I mean, I become so dependent on that technology nowadays. I can't even imagine what it would be like to go back to fishing with an electric motor that had a cable drive um, <laughs> like we used to use all those years ago. <laughs> so uh, another question I have for you. Do you have any memorable stories from uh, fishing competitive events, perhaps earlier Michigan walleye tour events? <laughs> There's actually been a lot of them. Uh, some of them maybe aren't, uh, aren't, aren't suitable for a podcast. <laughs> but uh, um, the one that I guess that comes to mind is um, – um, my tournament partner when I was fishing the Michigan Walleye Tour was um, Dr. Stephen Holt. He was also my partner in the book business, the precision trolling business early on. And Steve and I were not only, you know, fishing partners and business partners, but we were just good friends. And we spent a lot of time fishing, but he was a very busy guy. So most of the time I would do the majority of the pre-fishing because um, that just worked out better. And then he would show up and then we'd go do our thing. Well, as it turned out, this particular tournament, we won a tournament on Holloway Reservoir. And, uh, and I couldn't pre-fish for it. I believe at the time I had some kind of a family event that was going on. I couldn't pre-fish for it. Steve couldn't pre-fish for it. So we showed up cold turkey. And <laughs> we've been around tournaments long enough to know that's usually the kiss of death. Right. Uh, if you haven't pre-fished, you're usually not going to do well. 
So we were rushed around and we launched in the morning like everybody else did. And only to realize after we had dropped the boat in the water and Steve had pulled away with the trailer, I'm floating away with the boat and realize there's no plug in the boat. And oh, I'm no. shipping water. Oh, no. And I'm like, well, this, not only is this embarrassing, it's actually a pretty bad deal, you know, because now um, I've got to get Steve's attention, got to get him back down to the water, got to put the boat on the trailer, got to take the boat out of the water, got to, you know, drain all the water out of the boat. Anyway, the long story short, the first flight and the second flight left, and we were still sitting on the trailer draining water at the boat. Oh, no. <laughs> so we're pretty embarrassed. Everybody else is gone, and they're just doing their thing, you know. And so, like, you know, now what do you do? You know, so we put the plug in the boat, and we launched the boat. And Steve looks at me, and I look at him, and I goes, now what are we doing? He goes, let's just go fishing, man. And that's what we did. <laughs> and we ended up leading the tournament after the first day. And um, and so what we were doing wasn't special to Holloway. We were trolling crankbaits hot and tight, so open little stump fields. Um, but the way we were doing it is using precision trolling. So we were just ticking the tops of them stumps and not snagging a lot, um, coming close to the stumps, but not snagging. Mm -hmm. So the local bait shop there, um, of course they sell hot and tot. So we went there and bought every hot and tot they had in the store, every single hot, because there was no way we're going to have anybody else, um, out fishes on that particular bait. And the next day we go back and things are going real good. We're smoking fish and it's looking really, really good. Um, and we're getting near the end of the day and we need a fish and we run out of fuel on the kicker motor. Uh -oh. now you got to understand back in that day, we didn't have four stroke kickers. Everything's two strokes. And so you had a separate tank for your kicker mm -hmm. and neither one of us had thought to fill up the tank. And so <laughs> we ran out of gas <laughs> with an hour to go and we need more fish. And so I'm in the back of the boat. I disconnected the main fuel line from the main engine and I'm, using the squeezer ball, squeezing gas out of that <laughs> into my kicker tank. Um, of course, I had no oil on the boat, you know, so I'm running straight gasoline into a, into a two-stroke, uh, which is not necessarily the best thing to do. But I uh, got just enough gas in that thing to get it started and to run for a few more minutes. We boxed our last fish, and as luck would have it, that was the winning fish of the tournament. <laughs> No so, um, you know, normally I would recommend the guys to pre-fish hard, pre-fish as often as long as you can to be successful. But the only tournament that I never pre-fished for um, was the one that I did the best in. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. You definitely stayed with it and, and you found ways to adapt and you made it work. <laughs> Obviously. We had nothing to lose and everything to gain. Sometimes that's a, a good motivator. Plus, um, you know, pride gets in the wall and go gets in the way in that situation too. And, you know, Steve and I fished hard. That was never an issue. But in that particular event, we just did not have the time to practice. And so, we, in our minds, I we didn't think we were going to do well. But um, you know, the good Lord shined on us, and we started catching <laughs> fish. And, uh, and we could smell blood in the water. And once we could smell blood in the water, there was no stopping us. Yeah. That's great. Um, another question I want to ask you, um, what are some practical things that anglers uh, can do to harness their passion for fishing to turn it into something more? Well, you know, you know, I look back and I don't fish tournaments anymore, but I, I, I view tournaments very fondly. The time that I did fish tournaments was very productive for me. I learned an awful lot fishing tournaments. It's kind of like a college crash course, so to speak, in fishing. And the reason you fish so hard in tournaments is because pride's on the line. You don't mm -hmm. want to do poorly. You know, you've got your friends and family there watching you. Um, competition drives us. It drives us to be better and to work harder than the rest of the people out there. And so I strongly you know, encourage people to get involved, in, even if it's just local tournaments. Maybe you want to fish, you know, larger tournaments like the Masters or the Michigan Walleye Tour or the National Walleye Tour or whatever. Maybe you just want to fish club events. Join a walleye club like the West Michigan Walleye Club or the Downriver Walleye Federation or whatever it might be. Join a walleye club and fish their little club events. 
and it'll make you a better fisherman. I guarantee it. Plus you'll have a lot of fun yeah. and the camaraderie and the, you know, that comes with that, the fellowship that comes with that, I'll make you a better person. And, uh, and so that's a really good place to start. And there's unlimited opportunities. I mean, we state of Michigan is blessed with walleye clubs. There's one in just about every good metropolitan area and, uh, and every good place where you would find lots of walleye action. Absolutely. And for those that listen to this podcast, obviously we're Lake St. Clair Walleye Association. You can join our club too, but there, to Mark's point, there's clubs everywhere. It's a great place to get connected and uh, learn a little bit more about the local bodies of water and, and meet some great people. So um, last question I had for you is, Mark, um, what is the role of professionalism in folks that are involved, either in tournament fishing or um, industry how does professionalism play into day in, day out, living, breathing, fishing? It's everything. I mean, you know, if you can't sleep at night because your conscience is bothering you for something you did in the water, <laughs> you're not going to be very successful in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to go in the tournament situation. You got to go find your own fish. Um, you got to tip your cap to the guy who beat you. You got to walk up and shake his hand and congratulate him um, when you don't do as well as he does. I mean, that's the way it is in this world. Um, if you, you know, give yourself a set of values that are at a high level of professionalism and you stick to them, it'll never fail you. You may not win every event. You may not succeed at every adventure you try, but you'll be a better person for it. And the next time you'll be stronger and more likely uh, to be that guy that's at the head of the heap. So to me, it's, it's everything. And I'm still astonished in how I see people try to cut corners and uh, try to get uh, from point A to point B quicker uh, by not doing things the right way. There, there's no way around that. Take your time, do it right. If you're credible, you're a good fisherman and you're a good person. Yeah, and uh, I'd say that you built your career around that. And uh, you know, when I when I look at you and, and the stuff that you and Jake are doing, you know, you represent yourselves well with truthfulness, and you're you're honest, and you have integrity with everything you do. Well, Rob, I appreciate that. And if I could add anything more to that, it's just that you know, if you can surround yourself with other people who have the same values, uh, that helps as well. Um, it's really hard to be a you know one guy out there doing it on your own. If you can surround yourself with buddies who um, look at it the same way you do and want to work as hard as you want to work at it, um, you learn the game a lot faster. And, uh, and the fellowships that you develop with those relationships are priceless. Some of my closest friends are guys I've met um, fishing, <laughs> and that's the simple truth of it. Yeah. That's awesome. Mark, I just want to thank you so much for doing an interview with the Walleye World podcast. And uh, it's been great having you, hearing your insight about uh, everything from communication to uh, professionalism, taking some perspective at looking at Lake St. Clair. And really cool to have you on here. And I really appreciate your time. Uh, It's always my pleasure. Look forward to another time. Yeah, sounds good. That one was a lot of fun to put together. It's been a minute since I've talked to Mark. But, uh, yeah, I just want to leave the listeners with a couple things here. So, first of all, always be learning. Always have an opportunity and keep an open mind to learn from someone. And I know that no matter where you're at in your journey with angling, that you could learn something from that podcast. Um, Another thing is that, obviously, June has Father's Day in it. And I want to challenge you guys and gals, spend some time with your dad do something on the water if he's a fisherman. I did that with my dad. We took the St. Clair River on Father's Day. But time is short and make memories. So just wanted to challenge you guys. Do something your dad loves to do. Connect with him and uh, it'll be worth your while. So I hope you enjoyed the show. I just want to thank the Lake St. Clair Wall Association, Lama Glass, Renegade Outdoor Innovations, 
Offshore Tackle, AFCO, and Beef Jerky Outlet in Dundee at dundeejerky.com. I hope you guys have a good one. I hope you enjoyed the show, and we've got much more coming, so stay tuned.